Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the play Jack Kerouac, End of the Road, looks at the Beat Generation writer's life and death in Florida. You know, these artists that burn out so quickly, there's a genius. I don't know, there's a genius behind their work. We'll discuss World War II propaganda posters displayed in Florida, they were directly communicating to the American people, and it was all about national security and about rationing and about bolstering the, the morale, I guess, of Americans back at home. And we'll talk about the film and television industry in Miami. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. God only knows how much I love America. Going from one side to the other. I traveled two-lane, four-lane dirt. Steel ribbons spiked to the ground. Boxcars, buses, flatbeds, trucks, and trailers. The road is a passport in your mind, imprinted with every person you meet, every step you turn. I marked my trail with cigarette butts and candy wrappers. I shared my stories with housewives, bums, businessmen, migrant farmers who spoke only broken English. Everyone I met was either going to or running away from something. I saw ornate churches with spires that pierced the sky. God's living rooms. I saw towns in the night, lights from their windows, people praying over their food. I watched football, baseball, every step, my step. The road was life, breath, confirmed existence. Actor and playwright David McElroy portrays writer Jack Kerouac in the one-man show Jack Kerouac, End of the Road, accompanied by saxophonist Dylan Hannon. The play has been performed in a variety of venues since it was first staged in 2002. It can be seen at the Hub-on-Canal in New Smyrna Beach on February 9th and at Penguin Point Productions in Oviedo on February 28th and 29th. Jack Kerouac was living in Orlando in 1957 when he found out that his novel On the Road was finally being published. He died 12 years later at his home in St. Petersburg. Together with the Allen Ginsberg poem Howl and the William S. Burroughs novel Naked Lunch, Kerouac's On the Road established the rebellious, counterculture, anti-establishment literary movement known as the Beat Generation. David McElroy. He wrote it in three weeks. He uh, got a roll of teletype paper and he just kind of just really didn't sleep. He, as you know, he's an alcoholic and he, and he did a lot of benzedrine, which is like, woods is an upper. And, uh, and it just, he just wrote all the way, he never had any punctuation. I don't know if you've seen the roll or not, but it's just like, 
It was amazing, and he did it in three weeks. And then he went back and edited it, of course, and you could see on the roll where he's actually marked it out. And, but it was just the fact that he could do that, and it was just flew, flew out of him. It was amazing to me. So, In the play, we have a line from Capote, actually, who criticized him quite harshly because of his, his style of writing. Steve Rowell is co-author of the play Jack Kerouac, End of the Road. He wrote almost non-stop streaming type style, whereas Capote was more of a stop and start writer like many of the writers were. Stop, you think about what you're gonna write, then you write it, then you stop, and you think about what you're gonna write, and then you write it. Kerouac was just you know, going 90 miles an hour all the time. While the book On the Road has had a profound effect on generations of readers, that novel and the work of the other beat writers has not been universally embraced. Truman Capote famously criticized On the Road, saying that it was typing, not writing. Bob Keeling is author of the book Kerouac in Florida, Where the Road Ends. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the great poet who was the poet laureate of the United States when he published Howl, was thrown in prison for um, obscenity. So these guys were trailblazers. and I mean, they were talking about a countercultural lifestyle at a time of McCarthyism, um, at a time of communist paranoia. So these guys really stuck their neck out for what they believed in. And it wasn't just guys for that matter. Um, young writers like Joyce Johnson with her wonderful book, uh, Minor Characters, Anne Douglas. Um, so this was really a movement throughout the United States. And they did set the groundwork for the counterculture and the hippies, for better or worse. And um, they were trailblazers. And I think, um, there was, a, there was a quote from Ferlinghetti who talked about, you know, we live in a freer, more open United States because of the beats. The play Jack Kerouac, End of the Road, was first produced in 2002 at Chapters Bookstore in the same Orlando neighborhood where Kerouac was his most productive. Playwrights David McElroy and Steve Rowell. I worked with uh, Marty Cummins uh, at uh, Chapters in the old College Park, and uh, he was on the Kerouac board at the time, and we were talking about it, and, and I thought, oh, that'd be kind of an interesting thing to try to, because I do one-man shows, I do a one-man Christmas Carol and different, different other shows, and I thought it'd be interesting to, to uh, maybe explore his life. And my friend Steve, who I wrote it with, happened to be at a performance of my one-man Christmas Carol when Marty was talking to me about it, and he said, why don't we write it together? And we'd never done anything together, so we, we, we started back and forth. Uh, he would write a chunk, and I would write a chunk, and then I'd start putting things together. And uh, it just turned out to be uh, kind of a really cool uh, way to do it. And that's what we started in 2002, and Marty uh, was the first one to produce it. So, In the play, we deal quite a bit with his family, with his sister, his brother, who died very young. He was very devoted to his brother. So his family life affected a lot of the things he wrote in the way that he wrote. So uh, it's very important to add that aspect in when you're considering a character for a play. You don't want him to be one-dimensional and live only in the works that he's created, but you want to go deeper into his soul so you can make sure that you have an accurate portrayal on the, uh, on the stage of the guy. Laurel Clark is directing the new production of Jack Kerouac, End of the Road. It's fun working with David because he's not doing an, um, it's not an impersonation of Jack Kerouac. It's an interpretation. And that's really, in, in weaving the saxophonist into the pieces has been really fascinating. I've only done a couple musicals, but the music aspect of it is also 
exciting because we get to insert the sound into the haikus and it's been really fascinating piece to work with. I've studied Buddhism. I've written my own haikus. Listen to this man. Listen to this. In the darkness, I notice a TV set. I watch it anyway. Feet pound the pavement. The flower on the sidewalk ignores them. On the wall, a picture of a shipwreck hangs crookedly. A black boy eating vanilla ice cream smiles. Far out, man. The Beat Generation writers, including Jack Kerouac, are most often associated with New York and San Francisco, but as Bob Keeling explains, Kerouac has significant ties to Florida. His sister and brother-in-law came here in 1956. Uh, his brother-in-law wanted to try and um, get work in the burgeoning space industry, and they had Jack's mom's only grandchild with them. They were the only real nuclear family in Kerouac's family. So where his sister went, where his mother went, Kerouac would often follow, coming in off the road, dead tired, needing a place to crash, maybe get some work done. So that's what brought him to Orlando in 1956. Jack Kerouac spent his most productive years in Orlando. Bob Keeling was instrumental in having Kerouac's Orlando home preserved as an historic site. He did a great deal of work while he was living in Orlando. He did the final edits to his seminal novel of the 20th century, On the Road. But then once he saw success with that, he comes back to Orlando basically to get out of the glare of the spotlight of everybody wanting interviews and wanting to talk with the newly crowned part of the beat generation. So Orlando becomes his refuge. And during the next four or five months at the end of 1957 in the little back porch apartment in Orlando. This is really his last prolific period. He writes dozens of letters to people like Marlon Brando, urging him to do the film version of On the Road. And in fact, he ends the letter with a great sign off. He says, I wanna hear from you, Marlon, put up your dukes and write. And there was a plan for Brando to do on the road, but unfortunately Kerouac's agent held out for too much money and the deal never got done. But beyond the letters, beyond the poems, he wrote his follow-up book, Dharma Bums, in 11 frenetic days and nights in that college park house uh, in November and December of 1957. Um, so not only did he live in Central Florida, he did some of the greatest work of his career here, and that's certainly worth commemorating and celebrating. Actor and playwright David McElroy. You know, these artists that burn out so, so quickly, um, there's a genius. I don't know, there's a genius behind their work. And uh, I've read almost everything he's written, and it's just like, I almost feel my heart beating, you know, real fast when he, when he beatitude, maybe that's what it is, you know? Um, it's just something that's, if you, if you read his words, you, you'll, you'll get it. I don't know. I've, I've given on the road to several people and they went, oh my God, this is wonderful, you know? And, and then, then it, if you look at all of it, I think he wrote like 
oh, I think he wrote like 20,000 different things. You know, he had, he had reams and reams of notebooks and he had haikus and poetry and he even drew and did paintings. I mean, it's just amazing. And he died at 47. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's pretty good, I think. By the time Jack Kerouac was promoting On the Road in the late 1950s, he was no longer the carefree young man depicted in the novel, traveling across the country, taking drugs, drinking heavily, and listening to jazz. Playwright Steve Rao. Yeah, I think that was a big conflict. I think On the Road itself was a big conflict for him because it was written in such a short amount of time. It was written almost as a, as a live stream of consciousness. And when it was finished, it was done, and it was sealed, and it was sent off. Then he went on to live his life the rest of the way he lived it, yet everyone kept coming back to that because it was so iconic because of what it represented to every, every generation that came afterwards that he kind of got judged by that. And I think he would have liked to have been seen as something other than that person that was in that book. Director Laurel Clark. Whenever you have a, a writer that's as prolific as he was, there's so much in his writing that you can discover. And I, I hate to see writers like him just fall by the wayside because they're just as relevant today. And he is very much just as relevant. And so I, I'm excited that, that um, a lot of people will be just discovering him. And we're hoping that people will come see the show. If they haven't read any of his books, they'll go get one, you know? and. Uh, and if they are a big fan, that they'll go, wow, they really did a good job representing him and his life. That's what I'm hoping for. The one-man show Jack Kerouac, End of the Road, has been performed by David McElroy in a variety of venues since 2002. It can be seen at the Hub on Canal in New Smyrna Beach on February 9th and at Penguin Point Productions in Oviedo on February 28th and 29th. That's the way it was. In the early days when the streets were ours and our talent was brash and unbending, I roamed the streets of New York and San Francisco with poets and bums. Some of them were my friends. Gregory Corso and Allen Ginsberg were like the same person then, like a beast walking on the same two legs, walking the dingy streets in the darkness, but always watching for the light, the light of the street lamp, the warm glow of the morning sun as it crept up over the buildings. Alan was the brain of the beast, analytical, cold, unfeeling bastard. Gregory was a heart, loving, caring, beating this way and that. And me? I was the soul, curious, looking for meaning in everything and everyone. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, watch archived episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Florida was very active in World War II, and that's reflected in propaganda posters that were displayed around the state in support of the war. 
Yeah, that's right, Ben. I think when we think about the war, we, we generally think about the men and women who are really engaged in combat throughout the world, and even those who were training, uh, many of, of whom were here in Florida. But it's easy to forget the Second World War really was a total war. It involved the entire society at all levels. You know, folks were involved not only in manufacture of machines and airplanes and ammunition and things like that, but the government was also very conscious of the fact that a public had to really continue to support this type of war in order to be successful. We really had to be all in, so to speak. And these posters are a fascinating illustration of the federal government's efforts to maintain and, and to bolster that, not enthusiasm, but but a support, at least a, of an ongoing war effort, especially as the war dragged on year after year and, and men and women were dying overseas. We had to kind of keep in mind what people were fighting for. And that's what a lot of these posters really represent. Now, some of these posters supporting America's participation in World War II were created by well-known artists uh, like Norman Rockwell. Yeah, that's right, Ben. In fact, the first one that we're looking at today that I pulled from the Florida Historical Society's collection is one of Norman Rockwell's, it's part of a series called The Four Freedoms. And Rockwell uh, based this on a speech that Roosevelt gave in, in 1941. And, and Roosevelt kind of tried to lay out what people were fighting for. Because if you think about it, if you were to ask someone, what does freedom mean? Rockwell really wanted to turn these abstract ideas of freedom into basic images. And here we're looking at the freedom of speech. And it, it, you'll see here, it's just a gentleman, looks like standing in a small room, wearing a jacket, you know, he looks like kind of a, a blue collar guy, but he's standing up in a room and people are looking to listen and he's getting ready to speak. So it's it's very basic, but it pulls at the emotional heartstrings, if you will. And that was really the, the point. The government wanted these direct emotional appeals. And at the very bottom of this image, we see the words buy war bonds. And that was a big part of this effort. They were trying to bolster money to finance the war. Uh, so in order to people to, you know, this time people are coming out of the Great Depression. So there's not a lot of money for a lot of Americans to, to a lot of disposable income. Uh, so it was difficult for folks to, to part with, with those funds. But through these types of images, like the one created by uh, Norman Rockwell, you can see how people might kind of open up their wallet. And, and again, they were, they were thinking about the, the folks that we're fighting overseas. But if we look at some other ones, the themes kind of change a little bit. Here we have a, uh, an American aviator getting ready to hop into the, the cockpit of his airplane, and you'll see Japanese flags that were painted on the side that denote uh, successful attacks on, on the Japanese. And it simply says, keep him flying, and at the bottom again is buy war bonds. Uh, so that was a major theme, was trying to sell these war bonds. But something a little bit different here, we have an illustration of, it uh, looks like a mother and father and a son, and they're working in a garden, and it says, plant a victory garden our food is fighting. This was another big theme, rationing of items. You know, we think about ammunition, and, like I said before, metal and things like that, but, but food, uh, we had to feed our troops overseas. So they were encouraging people to plant their own gardens rather than going out and spending money on food, going out to restaurants and things like that. Here's another one with, looks like a, someone with a parachute, you know, coming down. It says, where our men are fighting, our food are fighting. Buy wisely, cook carefully, store carefully, and use leftovers. Mm -hmm. It seems kind of obvious, but again, think about how difficult it was for, for the average American family. You know, rationing was a, a very serious part of American life. 
during the war years. Another interesting one that we have here, it's, it's red and white, very bold, and at the top it says, doctors are scarce. It says, be prepared for minor injury or minor illness. Learn first aid and home nursing. So again, rather than taxing your local hospital, because a lot of these, these people were fighting in the war effort, uh, it was trying to encourage folks to kind of do it on your own <laughs> if you can. And lastly, this is another reoccurring thing. You know, national security was, was a major issue for the government at this time. So they wanted to, to remind Americans of how important it was to conceal, you know, troop movements. If you knew something, you got a letter, say, from, from your son who's fighting overseas, don't tell people where he is. This one, it simply shows a, a group of soldiers who are loading a, onto a ship. And it says, if you tell where they're going, they may never get there. Don't talk about troop movements. Again, very simple. They were directly communicating to the American people. And it was all about national security and about rationing and about bolstering the, the morale, I guess, of Americans back at home. Hmm. Now, for historians today, and, and anyone really, it seems like these posters can offer a unique perspective on the war. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, again, when we think about the war, we're thinking about the actual fighting, and we focus generally on the history of the actual fighting, These the theaters in Europe and, and in the Pacific and Africa and everywhere else. But when we talk about total war, we have to focus on the society as a whole. And through the study, at least, of these posters, we can understand better uh, what the American people went through. So those who weren't necessarily a part of the, directly a part of, of the military forces, they were part of this greater war effort. And these posters, even though they were ephemeral when they were originally produced, meaning they, they were meant to be disposed of, they weren't meant to be kind of long-term symbols of the war, people held on to them. And, and the fact that they've survived today, that we keep them in places like our archive, it can, again, help to tell the story, the story of the war. Great, Ben. Well, these are fascinating posters, and if people would like to see them, they can go to the Web Extra on myfloridahistory.org for this program. Thanks a lot. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She has this look at the film and television industry in Miami. Florida has been a center for film production since the beginning of the silent film era in the early 20th century. By 1920, there were dozens of motion picture companies operating in Jacksonville alone. The city of Miami also attracted the film and entertainment industry and became the setting for numerous movies and television shows. Dr. David Morton is an instructor of history at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. He is also an organizer and the program director for the Flickering Landscapes Conference series that explores place, space, and identity through examining regional film culture and history. Film production in South Florida specifically Miami, goes all the way back to the 1910s. Although we have this focus on Jacksonville as the center of film production in Florida, I mean, there are productions happening across the state throughout the decade of 1900, especially during the 1910s and in the 1920s. And then this continues all the way on through uh, much of the 1920s and 1930s. By the 1940s and 1950s, South Florida, and especially Miami, served as the glamorous tropical backdrop for countless films including Moon Over Miami, a comedy from 1941 starring Betty Grable, 
and the 1959 comedy Hole in the Head, a Frank Capra movie featuring Frank Sinatra. In both films, the main characters relocate to Miami in search of wealth and success. By the 1940s, we, we have the beginnings of a new kind of imaginary for Miami. This idea of South Florida, and specifically Miami Beach, as being this place for escape, this place that is almost manufactured and constructed, is one that really captured the imagination, not just filmmakers, but you know, the American television-going public at large. Between the 1960s and 1980s, television production increased in Miami. The television program Flipper, a show about a pet dolphin, aired from 1964 to 1967. Flipper, produced by Ivan Tor Studios, was filmed in Miami. Ivan Tor Studio also produced Gentle Ben, a program about an old black bear named Ben and his human family living in the Everglades. The show ran from 1967 to 1969. Dr. David Morton. We see the emergence of Ivan Tors who had aspired to essentially become sort of a counterweight in many ways to um, Walt Disney's approach to television and, and children's programming. And his, his first major um, production, of course, was Flipper. But then he um, ends up establishing what becomes known as Ivan Torres Studios, later the Greenwich Studios um, in, in South Florida, which is still used to this very day. And he really relished in um, the landscape itself. Um, so programs like Sea Hunt, which uh, uses the aquatic environment outside of Greenwich Studios and the South Florida landscape is one that really took hold. Ultimately, though, then we have programs like Gentle Ben that ended up really um, giving a whole new generation of young Americans through the television screen another idea of what the Florida imagined environment um, looks like. For most of the 20th century, the city of Miami was primarily portrayed in film and television as a vibrant tropical paradise full of opportunity and glamour. In the 1970s and 1980s, a different depiction of Miami emerged as the crime rate increased. The 1983 film Scarface, about a Cuban drug lord played by Al Pacino, and the 1980s crime drama television series Miami Vice, about two undercover detectives, symbolized Miami's gritty, violent reputation during that time. By the 70s, Miami public image has completely um, and utterly deteriorated. By, by 1972, I mean, we also start seeing the, the disrepair of the Art Deco district and much of South Florida as a whole, and it starts to reflect on the imagery that then begins to appear on the screen. In the 1980s, Miami Vice influenced American culture, television, film, music, and fashion. The show's popularity also improved the public's perception of Miami. We essentially have what was known as the Miami Vice Effect, where yes, you have this undertone of violence and crime, but you also have narratives of integration. You also then see this idea that Miami also has glitz and glamour associated with it. And the program is, and I think very justifiably credited then, uh, with helping to spark both a return to tourism and also the restoration campaign that basically brought the Art Deco district back from the dead in many ways. So it's just a fascinating case study of both how communities respond and react and how a community can take agency over the type of images that are being perpetuated about it. From the lighthearted 1941 movie Moon Over Miami to the 1980s crime drama television series Miami Vice, 
Film and television captured the changing image of Miami that took place in the 20th century. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, you can register for our upcoming Caribbean conference cruise. Leaving out of Port Canaveral May 16th, we'll spend a week touring historic sites related to Florida history in San Juan, St. Thomas, and Grand Turk. Fascinating presentations about Florida history will take place on board ship. There's only a few cabins left for this amazing event, so don't miss the boat. Find out more at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.